listeners, welcome back to the next episode of Ladies First, your podcast featuring super inspiring women. It's Alina here, and today I'm with Deanna Pan, a reporter at the Boston Globe, and in 2019 was recognized as a Pulitzer Prize finalist in feature writing. She was also on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list. So thank you so much for being with us today. So I want to start by talking about the series you led on George Stinney Jr., which first of all, wow, really, really great piece of writing, both in terms of writing and content. I, I think it's like a really important piece to, to read. So I can only imagine how sad it was to write because reading it, I like needed a box of tissues. So tell me about your journey writing that. Sure, and Alina, thank you so much for inviting me to speak with you. Um, I love talking to young people, especially you know ambitious high school students like yourself. Um, I actually got my start in journalism, uh, writing and then editing for my high school news magazine. So, um, so yeah, I'm always happy to help out uh, students like you when I can. So uh, I started working on the George Stinney series, um, I want to say quite a few years ago, maybe in 2017, um, because the process of just reporting the story and, and putting it together uh, took about a year. Uh, at the time, I was an education reporter for the Post and Courier newspaper in Charleston, South Carolina, and um, I had I'd heard about George's story and I had wondered, you know, what else uh, had been written on it. Uh, there had seemed to be just, you know, in, in the press at the time um, and more recently, uh, there was some talk that, you know, of course his conviction, um, uh, so, and I guess I should obviously supply some background. So George Tinney Jr., he is the youngest person who was ever executed in modern American history. Um, it was in 1944. He was 14 years old and, and he was black. And the, uh, you know, what had happened to him was clearly this miscarriage of just, you know, the jury and the trial that convicted him of murder. Um, they deliberated for, you know, less than 10 minutes. Um, his judge, if, if I recall correct, or I'm sorry, his attorney, if I recall correctly, was, um, I think a tax attorney, uh, really made no argument, you know, in his client's defense. And it was uh, definitely a case where you could see a lot of racial injustice playing out because the um, victims in this case were two little girls and they were both white. And they lived in this town together called Alkaloo in South Carolina that was um, very racially segregated. And um, so, you know, it was definitely a sham trial. And um, what was clear to me, it was that, and I think to a lot of um, advocates who had been working for years and years, decades, to get his conviction overturned, even after he had been executed, was that there was no way this skinny 14-year-old kid could have, could have done this. And even, you know, for years, his siblings, who um, I should say were never asked to testify in his defense during the trial, who would have given um, some kind of alibi, uh, you know, they always maintained, you know, his innocence, that he couldn't have possibly been able to do this. So there were lots of rumors and stories flying around in 1944, and even, you know, when I started investigating that um, not only did George not commit, you know, these heinous murders, but that there was someone else who um, would have been a more likely uh, suspect. That's another um, aspect of the story uh, that we explored. So when I first came across this, this story, you know, 
I, I was curious, you know, but how well known this was, you know, outside of South Carolina, you know, this is a, a tragic tale involving the youngest person, again, you know, ever put to death in our modern American history. And it seemed like there wasn't, especially when I was doing my research, there wasn't a ton on it in terms of, you know, uh, academic research, um, historical articles, you know, it seemed like his story to me was at risk of getting sort of lost in sort of the passage of time, especially as, you know, the people who were around in 1944, you know, were getting older, losing memory, uh, dying, uh, things like that. Um, so nothing in depth had ever been written about the case. I mean, it's, it's interesting too to think about how, you know, he was executed uh, maybe about 10 years or so, 11 years, I think, earlier than, um, you know, the, the murder of Emmett Till, um, which was, you know, this huge kind of um, turning point, you know, in, in the early part of the civil rights movement. And in, the, in that, you know, it really, you know, opened, you know, a ton of people's eyes to, you know, racist abuse that was occurring, you know, across the country, but, but really mostly in the South, actually. And, uh, you know, it ended up being, you know, it was a case that got obviously a ton of media attention at the time, continues to receive and has received, you know, tons of scholarly research, documentary work, uh, writing, research, um, analysis in a way that I felt the George Diddy case never received. So, um, so that for me was sort of the starting point. So what more can I learn about this? Can I create a record of his story um, that will last, that will, um, you know, sort of make its mark in history, I guess. Otherwise, we would risk sort of losing this story. So I'm sure it was like really heartbreaking to write. Was it, was there like a lot of emotion in your, in your writing journey? I mean, definitely. I mean, you can't, you know, the most famous photo of George Stinney is his, you know, his mugshot from prison. And you can't help but even just look at that photo and feel, you know, empathy and compassion, this kind of like wide-eyed um, kid and knowing what he went through, um, just how horrible that must have been is, is you know, it's obviously, it's heartbreaking. Um, you know, I, throughout my reporting, I, I had the chance to talk to a man who, um, he currently lives in New York, but at the time he was actually in jail um, with George before uh, George was transferred to the um, state penitentiary. And um, you know the stories he told me about you know this uh, George, you know he really was just a little kid. You know he was um, kind of playing hide and seek with his soulmate. He was you know singing country music. You know he was very childish, and it seemed like even then he didn't really understand you know, the weight and the gravity of the situation he was in. And then, of course, when I heard the stories about what happened, you know, at the actual, you know, day of his execution, you know, the fact that he was so small, the um, straps that they used to um, connect the, the electrodes to his legs, you know, they were too big, the mask they put on, they call it the death mask they put on your face, you know, again, that was slipping off and he had tears in his eyes. I mean, uh, you can imagine how terrified he was and the fact that his family, you know, the last time they saw him was when he was taken in for questioning by the police because his family actually was run out of town. Um, you know, they themselves could have been victims, you know, of, of a lynching. Um, and, and one of the, I think, kind of the arguments I, I make in the, the piece is that what happened to George was, um, you know, it was a legal lynching. It was a lynching that was, um, you know, executed by, you know, the, the state, by, by the government. 
as opposed to, you know, we normally think of lynchings, uh, we think of these sort of mob, kind of almost like vigilante type of um, killings. And of course, what happened to George was, you know, sanctioned by the, the state of South Carolina, all the way up to, you know, the governor who would ask to step in and stop this from happening because people knew this was a travesty of justice. Um, people all over the country were writing to Governor Olin Johnson saying, how can you let this happen? Because remember, this was 1944. We're, um, you know, in the middle of World War II. The U.S. is, you know, overseas fighting Hitler and the Nazis who obviously had carried out their own kind of, um, you know, systemic campaign, you know, against uh, Jewish people and you know they're saying how can you do something like this like this is just as bad as, as you know what Hitler is doing and um, you know the governor Johnson wasn't moved by any of those articles or by any of those letters that he received and yeah it was, so it was I mean it was you know heartbreaking and I think you know but key to even finishing this story and in a lot of ways as a journalist is you kind of have to um, you know remove yourself a little bit and um, sort of steal yourself to these kinds of really tragic stories or else it could just become sort of too overwhelming and, um, you know, hard to finish. So, um, you know, I think just throughout the, the writing process, reporting process, you know, you have to keep your emotions a little bit um, at, at arm's length in order to be able to, you know, even finish the work or else, again, it would just be too overwhelming and, and exhausting. So when I was reading it, like there were scenes like the actual scene of, you know, when they, they killed him and it was so detailed, like you really got like his eyes were open, his tears were on his face. Like, how did you get, you know, especially because when you actually look it up, like it's hard to find a lot of a lot of details about that. Like I even remember learning about Emmett Till and and there was just a lot of lack of details. Like, how did you find all of this to be able to, to put the story together? So scenes like that and, um, you know, a lot of the story was based on archival research. So there were newspaper reporters at the time who um, witnessed the execution and wrote about it. Um, part of the scene, too, um, was constructed based on an interview I had done with a family member of, a, 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 of someone who was actually there. Um, someone who was sympathetic to George and his family and sort of watched the, the scene of, of the execution unfold, you know, in horror. Um, so, so it was a combination of it, and not just for that scene, but for the entire series, especially the, the historical um, parts of it is, you know, you're relying on um, old newspaper articles. Because again, at the time, you know, when this happened in 1944, it was a pretty big deal. It, it garnered, you know, national press attention. So there was a lot written in the papers, um, the um, South Carolina Department of, and I can't remember the words, but you know they have their own uh, history archives department. And um, the archives had tons of original documentation in terms of, uh, there was like a, a coroner's exam of the girls' bodies. There, were, there was a record of um, like the outgoing mail uh, that George had, had sent while he was in jail. Um, there were some notes from, from um, his trial, you know, it wasn't a lot, but there was definitely some primary source and, you know, especially if you're in high school, you know, you know, it's like to kind of create like a, like a, a research paper, which is a lot sort of what this was. Um, so there was, there was some primary source documentation to look back on. And then um, 
Clarendon County, which is uh, the county where the town of Alkaloo is in, the town where George grew up, uh, they also had their own archives um, on the case. And they also had uh, just some sort of documents that helped give me a sense of what Alkaloo was like in 1944. You know, there was a little book, um, I think it was called A Little History of Alkaloo that was written by um, a, a, re a relative of one of the town's founders. Um, and of course, the, there were, um, you know, people who were alive at the time, you know, they were uh, very young when this occurred, you know, they were children. But, um, you know, I was able to interview um, a man named uh, Francis Batson, who um, I believe he's in Arkansas now, but um, he was one of the original um, kind of boys on the search party when, the, when these two girls who were murdered had gone missing. Uh, he was one of the people who found their bodies um, out in the woods. And I was able to talk to him on the phone. Um, I was able to talk to uh, one of George's uh, surviving uh, siblings, Amy Stinney, who uh, I believe she still lives in New Jersey. So uh, yeah, it was definitely a combination of relying on uh, kind of old newspaper articles, uh, these primary source kind of documents, and then um, interviews with either people who were around at the time, might have witnessed it, might have had some perspective, or um, you know, people who, who knew people who had lived there at the time and, and had these stories sort of passed down to them. So what do you think is the most important part about writing a story like this? I mean, accuracy, you know, is always, you know, a, a huge, you know, priority for me. And I think for any good journalist, you know, you want to make sure, especially with a story like this, that is going to um, kind of dredge up a lot of um, you know, negative emotions and memories, um, especially for the people who, who currently live in, in Alkaloo, for people who, who sort of want to keep the past buried, or, or for people who uh, still find the past, you know, very painful and, and traumatic. So you want to really ironclad your work and make sure that it's impeachable, that no one can read it and point to you and say, oh, um, you know, I found this one little detail is wrong. You, you messed up the date here or, or the misspelling of the name here. So I'm going to use that to discredit, you know, the whole series. And um, so you don't want that to happen. So it's, you know, it's really important, you know, for me to, you know, again, make sure it's as accurate as possible that I cite kind of all my sources. I think we had, um, there was a, a part of the, the, at least when it was published, I think there was a list we might have published for how we reported or how we ended up reporting the story. Um, I think that was important for people to know. Um, yeah, so I, I wanted it to make sure it was, yeah, it's factually accurate as possible. I'm, I'm not here necessarily to, um, you know, spin the truth as I see it, but to report and write about the truth as it is and as it was at the time. And, you know, and that to me, I, I feel like is, you know, the most important role, not only in this particular story, but as a journalist as a whole, which is to, you know, accurately and, and truthfully as possible, you know, present the story, um, you know, the best way that you can. So now you work, you, you write for the Boston Globe and, and prior to this, you wrote somewhere else. So, you know, are these the types of stories you typically write about or was this kind of different for you? I'm definitely attracted to stories about, you know, social and uh, racial justice. Um, since the uh, killing of George Floyd uh, in Minneapolis, I've done a lot of work 
um, just reporting on, on race and, and protest movements that have been happening, you know, not only here locally, but, you know, across the country. Um, so, so those are the types of stories I'm interested in. Um, anything that um, kind of covers those kinds of topics and, um, I don't know, stories that are, you know, again, as I said before, that, that are at risk of being lost to history. Um, and I think, you know, you can see how important that is, especially now, you know, we've, this summer, you know, our country sort of entered, you know, this quote unquote racial reckoning where we, I think as a whole, our nation is really trying to reconcile, you know, our, our past in terms of uh, slavery and Jim Crow and the subjugation and oppression of black Americans with, you know, what's happening now um, in terms of police brutality, um, incarceration and all the other ways that black people and of course other people of color continue to be marginalized. And, you know, part of the way that we do that, that we, we reach reconciliation is by studying and understanding history. And of course, there's also been a movement, a counter movement in this country to uh, sort of suppress, right, the knowledge of history or the true knowledge of history. I'm sure you've heard about the New York Times 1619 project and um, the backlash that has received on the right. People who say, oh, you're, you know, you're making America seem bad. You're, um, you know, telling this sort of false story about what America is. And that's not really what, it, you know, that's, you know, that's a ridiculous argument. And what projects like uh, the 1619 Project, I think the work that I do that a lot of, you know, modern historians do is about recontextualizing, you know, these horrific things. And, you know, we're not trying to, it's about not covering it up. It's about, again, presenting the truth as it was and as it is. And in a way that sort of centers the people who um, were most harmed by this. And, and that was important for, again for me too in the series on George Sinney is I wanted to center George's story, his family's story, you know, the pain that they went through. And of course then the, the process and um, the, the progress that was made in terms of, you know, uncovering and, and addressing the wrongs of that case, you know, all those 70 years later when, um, you know, his uh, conviction was eventually um, overturned in court. So I want to also hear a little bit about your journey of the Pulitzer Prize. You know, how did that even go about that you were in? Like, tell me about that. Uh, honestly, it was a complete shock. Um, by the time that I left the posting career shortly after the series on um, George Denny was published. I, I went and uh, moved to New York where my uh, fiance was living, um, sort of with the idea of, you know, taking some time off, thinking about, you know, the next steps in my career. Um, I had no idea that, um, my that my former paper had even um, nominated the work, like, like entered it to be a, uh, a contender in the Pulitzer Prize. Um, I was not involved in that process at all. And yeah, so when the announcement came out um, in April of that year, kind of following year, um, I was completely shocked. I think I only found out because, you know, someone had messaged me on Twitter and I couldn't believe it. And I had to sort of <laughs> go on to the, the Pulitzer Prize uh, Twitter account and sort of check for myself. Um, it was really, uh, it was really, really surprising. That's so exciting for you. What, what an exciting ride. Yeah, it was really exciting. It was, um, 
you know, it had been for me on a, on a personal note, it had been sort of a difficult year in that I was, um, well, at the time I knew I was going to the Boston Globe, but, you know, even in the months before and before I was offered a job at the Globe, I was really struggling in, in terms of thinking about, you know, what's next in my career? What do I really want to do? Um, and there was a while, especially, you know, the, the winter before there had been, you know, all of these layoffs and um, job losses at, at so many other sort of national and, and local news organizations. I thought, you know, is this even going to be viable for me long term? Because um, if you know anything about the news industry, it is shrinking rapidly. And, um, you know, I think when I found out I was uh, a finalist for that prize, it really cemented to me that, that I was on the right path. That and I, by, by sticking with journalism, by saying, you know what, I'm going to tough it out, um, you know, it made me realize that I had made the right decision. Well, a really, really phenomenal piece of writing. I'm actually going to link it in the description so people can read it because I really think it's an important thing to read. It has a lot of really important messages. So thank you for being with us. I just want to ask you, I always want to end off by asking this, if you could give one piece of advice to all, more specifically to the young female listeners, what would that piece of advice be? You know, um, as far as career advice goes, you know, I would say, especially if you are interested in a creative field, whether that's something in journalism or the arts or, or just writing, you know, more broadly, you know, you really, it's, it's not easy. It's, it's, it's definitely hard. There are, um, gosh, there's so many challenges that will come your way, but if you are passionate about it um, and you can kind of make a decision to stick with it, um, you know, that is sort of the most important because as soon as you lose that passion, that fire, that spark that keeps you going, um, you know, it's not worth it <laughs> kind of to go through the, the drudgery, I think, of um, and, and the sort of heartbreak uh, of, of pursuing, you know, a, a creative type of profession. Um, because yes, it's, it's incredibly competitive. Um, especially and in the beginning, you know, and, and your, you know, the pay isn't going to be great. Um, and, and you will probably be told, like I've been told numerous times throughout my career that, you know, I'm, I'm not good enough or, you know, I, I'm doing something wrong or, you know, I'll never kind of make it, I guess, in my career. And um, as long as you have, again, that fire in your belly, that passion, um, you know, hold on to that cultivate that let that um keep you going and sometimes that's going to be all you have and um but you know as soon as that spark dies out it, it's it's okay then you know to try something new i guess well i like that piece of advice thank you so that helpful? <laughs> yes, very helpful i get the most interesting piece of this pieces of advice. I love it. I love asking you that question. Okay. <laughs> uh, but thank you so much for coming on. And again, I'm going to link her piece in the description. I really think everybody should give it a read. So thank you for being with us. This is Alina Puri and tune in next time for another special guest. Thank you.